This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore journeys of the mind and journeys of the body as we look at parallels between practices of Christian pilgrimage and the journey of pastoral counseling. We talk with William Schmidt, a professor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago, about his work. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. William Schmidt. He's professor in the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. His research interests include the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality. He's the author and editor of several books and articles, including The Spiritual Horizon of Psychotherapy, published by Routledge in 2010, and Walking with Stones, A Spiritual Odyssey on the Pilgrimage to Santiago. He's the editor of the journal Spirituality and Mental Health, and his research addresses the theme of contemporary pilgrimage as a resource for spiritual growth, transformation, and healing. Professor William Schmidt, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much. So, in my introduction for you, I used a lot of terms, and I think that they could maybe bear with some definitions. So, if we use the terms counseling and therapy and psychotherapy and psychiatry, do these terms all mean the same thing, or should we differentiate them in some way? We could differentiate them through maybe the idea of of severity or the depth of problems. So counseling generally is understood as a form of accompaniment more in terms of, let's say, life problem solving, in terms of one's life circumstances in relationships or your sense of uh, personal identity in terms of a a job or a role, a profession. Psychotherapy tends to deal with more longstanding psychological problems. So it has a a kind of a a different skill set that has a little bit more duration for sure. And so when we talk about psychotherapy, is that something that you practice or how would you define what it is that you do and that you teach? I would say most contemporary pastoral practitioners have a range of skill sets that would they would have prepared themselves for that wider range, but their life context might determine what kind of persons they might end up working with primarily. So in my case, I tend to be a little bit more selective, and so I do work with people who have more longstanding uh, life issues, so I would use the term psychotherapy. So I, I self-identify as a pastoral psychotherapist. And is this different from what we might have heard of if we've heard the term pastoral counseling, or is this similar to that? It's very similar. It'd be like uh, pastoral counseling is a bit of a larger umbrella, and psychotherapy would be kind of a subset within counseling. And I appreciate your your letting me get these questions out because it helps my listeners as well. If we've encountered the term spiritual direction, how does that differ from what we're talking about here? 
There are certainly the interpersonal elements in terms of when a person sees a spiritual director or a spiritual companion. They have uh, listening skills. They have the ability to attend in a deep way with another human being, but their focus is more on the relationship with God. And so there's a kind of a very specific set of focus areas that a person would would want to in, you know enter into in terms of spiritual direction, and so if somebody goes to a spiritual director, they're they're maybe not going there because they're desiring to heal something. It's more like they're trying to discern a path in life or something like that. Yeah, or to understand their relationship with God more deeply, and you know we can go into crises in our in our spiritual journeys in which we need someone to really help us unpack that and and deal with our sense of alienation with ourselves, with God, and with others, but the focus being how our, how is our relationship with God impacting these other broader life concerns. And my final clarifying question about this has to do with chaplaincy. So how is all of this different from what someone might may have encountered if they've gone to a hospital and encountered a hospital chaplain or, or someone like that? Right. So chaplaincy is another subset of pastoral care, and it accompanies people through, I would say, more their existential crises in life. Uh, could be primarily uh, medical, but it could be dealing with a whole host of other things. There nowadays, there's a whole new movement in, uh, let's say, work-based chaplaincy. So companies are actually hiring chaplains to uh, speak to the kind of the spiritual, pastoral, interpersonal concerns of their employees. Now, there are some faith traditions that are very hesitant to embrace therapy as a practice. And so there's a there's a rhetoric that you hear sometimes that says, well, if you just if your faith was better, you wouldn't need this counseling. If you, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't need to go and talk to this person. How would you respond to those kinds of criticisms? And have you ever encountered them in your own practice? Yeah, certainly when I when I was in chaplaincy for uh, I was a hospital chaplain for 18 years. And so uh, often you encounter people that have a very, uh, I'll, I'll call it a limited way of maybe understanding their own faith journey in light of their personal problems. So they have like one way of interpreting or understanding their problems. And, and basically one of the main premises of counseling and chaplaincy is to accompany people where they are, like accepting them where they are. So whatever their faith assumption is informing them, uh, you have to really, that's your, that's your starting point. But often what happens in a crisis our way of understanding faith, understanding God, kind of the, the symbols that we rely on to understand these primary experiences, those symbols have broken down. And so I found, I found many times in chaplaincy when, when a person comes in with a, with a more, let's say, rigid understanding of God, their current problem is not matching their sense of how God is showing up in the problem. And so the skill set of a, of a competent chaplain would include the ability to ha- have a the patient in this case, really open up these deep questions, these these troubling concerns that they're not able to work out in their on their own kind of thing. Well, and you just talked about this notion of symbols. So I, I think some of my listeners who are evangelical might get a little hesitant about that because are you saying that a person's faith concerns are simply a matter of rearranging like the chess pieces on a board or what are we talking about when we're talking about looking at these things as symbols? Yeah. So for instance, an evangelical person would probably use the Bible as their problem their primary lens for understanding God and and their and God's relationship with them. So you'd have to work with their use of Scripture as their as your pr- primary way of helping them sort of understand how Scripture maybe has a broader application to the particular problem they're living. 
And so you said that you worked for many, many years as a chaplain. When you would encounter people of these various faith traditions, how would you present yourself? Would you foreground where you come from in your own faith journey, or would you simply present yourself as a, as a spiritual presence but without much definition? Well, I think everyone has to have some honesty around what they bring. So depending in, on the context, so let's say if you're in a hospital setting that is, has a, primarily, a primary affiliation with a faith tradition, you're likely to have more clients or patients from that tradition. But if you're in a broader, let's say, general hospital environment, you simply have to present yourself as a chaplain for all persons, but you, you would self-identify as as you might operate from a particular tradition, but any chaplain who is now certified would have a skill set that would allow them to really engage with deeply spiritual questions and, and personal questions in a kind of an integrative way. And so they would have enough skill to work with the faith frameworks of that person. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor William Schmidt of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We're discussing his work at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality. A little later in the conversation, Professor Schmidt and I will be talking about his interest in pilgrimage. If you enjoy that part of the conversation, you might also be interested in another interview I did with the journalist Jana Reese. We talk about the work that she and her reporter colleagues did on the prayer wheel in episode 1816, A New Spin on Ancient Prayer. Here's a little bit of that conversation. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that this manuscript was found bundled up with a very beautiful and ornate collection of the Gospels. And so, in the introductory notes, you mentioned that you imagined that this book of the Gospels was one that was used, for example, the swearing of oaths and other sorts of formal activities. And so, it, it's here existing, you know, with this very formalized version of the Bible or very for, formalized version of the Gospels, but it's this other thing, isn't it? It's, it's this non-institutional other thing. I agree. It's both. And it's interesting, we found out about the idea that this book of Gospels was used for ceremonial occasions from the art dealers who had studied these before. And so the idea was that if you had some kind of special annual processional at the convent or the monastery, you would trot out the book and you would carry it down the aisle to the front of the church where everyone could see it. So it has this public function, but it also, and we can look to see this from the, the finger smudges, it also has this kind of private instructional function within the monastery itself, that people are actually using this diagram and trying to grow closer to God. Well, you began to allude to this earlier in the conversation, but I'd like to return to it. How has working on, researching, studying, and writing about this prayer wheel affected your own spiritual practices? To me, this is a call to return home, and it is that for me as well as for every person who picks up the prayer wheel and sees the invocation that's written around the perimeter that it teaches the return home. What the prayer wheel has done is introduce a whole different context for some of those words. For example, in the fourth path, the one that begins with daily bread, this is the path that I find myself praying most often for other people. So when I'm doing intercessory prayer for people who are hurting or sick or afraid, this is the path that I tend to turn to, that I am praying that they will have daily bread. And understanding that 
there is nothing that we can experience in terms of pain in, and suffering in this world, however terrible it can be at times, that Christ has not sanctified. That was Jana Reese talking to me from episode 1816, A New Spin on Ancient Prayer. You can listen to all of our recent episodes on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor William Schmidt of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We're discussing his work at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality. Well, in several of the Gospels, there's a story about a man who lives on the outskirts of town who is possessed by many demons, and sometimes he's referred to as Legion or the Gerasene Demoniac. And when I teach that story with my students, we talk a little bit about the fact that there is a, a, a dimension in which the reality of demons is very present for the writers of those Gospels. But with modern ears, we might hear that story in a different way. And so I want to ask you, when we encounter stories in the Bible about demon possession, should we be hearing that through a psychological lens or is it appropriate to, to think about this in a spiritual way? How do you navigate these kinds of questions, and, and is this the right question to be asking? Yeah, a lot depends on what a person's history with these terms is. So, In other, in other words, if a person has grown up in an environment where they have a, a very strong, I'll call it a little bit more dualistic, uh, sense of, of faith where... Uh, let's say there are evil forces in the world that are sort of impinging or, or kind of uh, trying to manipulate a person. So there, that's a particular set of assumptions. So any good counselor will work with that set of assumptions. So we're, we're, we're not going to engage a person effectively if we come at them with a kind of a, an opposite uh, worldview. So my approach to integrative work with people in terms of both their spirituality and their psychology is to see things happening in there in real terms, in terms of what is the actual experience that a person is undergoing. So when you have an experience of, let's say, deep fragmentation in your life, it'll show up as kind of parts of oneself that are at war with each other. And so when we come into a, a place of deep internal distress, where the parts of our inner, inner feelings are at conflict and are battling themselves out, we could use a word, like, and a person who, a person who's suffering in this way may even use a word like I feel possessed. And so I don't have to sort of use a dualistic uh, set of interpretations for that, but just simply meet the person at the point of their distress around that internal tension. So I think it's the, the key issue here is to meet people where their distress is and to give them voice around that distress in a, in a kind of a safe, reflective, and in a healing way. 
So let me see if I've heard you correctly. So your approach would be to listen carefully to the story that they're telling themselves. Yes. And to the extent that you can, enter into that story and then begin to navigate from there. First of all, have I heard the approach correctly? Yes. And you used a term a moment ago, integrative. Can you define what you mean by this? Well, all of our experiences, I believe, ultimately take us to God's redemptive and healing work in our lives. But the access point has to be through the actual experiences and suffering that a person is is undergoing. So unpacking those and providing a safe environment for those being described and named and lovingly met, in a way, allows that internal sort of repressed... Often what happens when people have suffered for a long time, they've repressed their pain around a particular fundamental life theme. And so they need a safe environment and permission to really let these kind of deeply burdened parts of themselves come to the surface. And so the skill of pastoral care in this way is to sort of let the full flow of emotions and conflicts that that resides in the person to kind of come to voice. So sometimes I grew up in the Deep South, and I have encountered religious communities that have basically said when a person is having this kind of narrative of crisis, simply deepen your faith. If you simply thought about this in a better way, if you were praying more, if you were more spiritual, that would be your solution. It's almost like they take the story and they try and narrate the story back as if the person is experiencing their own emotions incorrectly. Have you ever encountered that? Well, one of the problems with an approach that in a, in a way judges a person in other words in other words we create a scenario where your feelings are not legitimate your suffering story is not legitimate so that's really counterproductive to to any healing journey so the starting point is really ownership can we help people find more ownership of what's really going on for them once you find that ownership you may come into a faith kind of your own faith history has maybe blocked some other ways of understanding what's happening in your life. And so broadening the story, including the the biblical story and the Christian story, the Christian story will have a kind of a, a, a redemptive story to meet your own pain. So whatever pain you're journeying through, there's going to be a frame of reference that will help free that burden from you. So if I'm hearing correctly what your technique is, your first step is to help a person kind of admit the pain that they're feeling, to actually be honest. To own it. To, to own it. it. Yes. And then, and then to use your word, to own your story, and then to begin to navigate to a different, a different set of understandings out of that honest reality. Correct. Okay. How long does a process like that take, or does it depend? You know, there, there are life problems that are so deep-seated that may have had a lot of other layers of pain laid on top of them, like, for instance, trauma. Mm. Persons who have gone through trauma stories, they may take much more time because they have to sort of cut through a lot of the layers of distress that they have had to repress or, uh, you know, their pain has been reinforced in, in some negative ways. So they have not found probably a safe environment to unpack their story. So generally, that's one of the reasons why things take longer, is you have to create enough internal safety to, to allow your pain actually to find its full voice. Now, you engage in a regular set of 
practices. So you're you're a practicing therapist yes. at the same time as being a professor. Correct. Tell me about that balance. So how does that work in a given week or a given month? What is, what is your time commitment to both and how do they balance against one another? Well, I'm a full-time teacher and so I have responsibilities in my teaching uh, role. But because I'm also a practitioner, a pastoral practitioner, I, uh, I need to keep my hand in my in my craft as a as a minister, uh, and so I do that as a as a regular uh, ministry. So I I spend one day a week doing counseling, so I see anywhere from uh, six to eight people a week uh, in counseling. I spend generally I do it all day Saturdays, so I have that as a kind of a forum. And I bring that material, those insights and learnings that I, I need to keep growing around, I bring those into the classroom. And so our students are also then in their own pastoral settings, clinical settings. And so we're all kind of bringing these life problems, these life challenges to uh, to the classroom environment, and we sort of are learning from each other, basically. Now, the students here at the Institute for Pastoral Studies that you work with, are they going to go on and become counselors? Are they going to go on and become ministers? Is it a mix? What sort of students do you work with? We have two degrees at the Institute of Pastoral Studies that focuses on sort of caregiving ministries, well, three, really. A chaplaincy would be under maybe the Master Divinity program, but in the counseling in particular, we have a, a counseling track that is more for clinical counseling. In other words, there's licensure involved where you're actually entering into state requirements in terms of the skill set that you need. We also have another degree called Counseling for a Ministry, and this would be more of a generalist degree which helps pastors in their frontline engagement with people when they show up at a parish, they're in some life difficulty, and the, par- the pastor wants enough skill set to really understand a little bit more deeply what's going on and how to refer them better and to have a more limited accompaniment of their, of their life dilemma. In certain traditions, for instance, the Episcopalian Church, pastors in that tradition are uh, limited to, to six sort of formal counseling sessions. And if a person needs more than six sessions, they tend to refer them on to someone else. So there are formal ways of doing that in terms of, you know, how, how deeply should you immerse yourself in the problems, let's say, a parishioner might have. Now, if a person is coming to you for pastoral counseling on a Saturday, as you said, in your regular practice, should they be worried that something that they talk about will show up in one of your lectures during the week? No. We have to operate under pretty strict and uh, conscious ethical guidelines, which means privacy is is inviolable. In other words, we don't in any way, we don't have the right to share anything personal information, even when a student uh, brings their reports to our classroom, the student's papers will have to identify, uh, will will change the name. So there's no names involved or anything like that that would reveal anything about the identity of the person. Well, so then let me ask, how do you bring your experience into the classroom? So what are the techniques that you use to draw from what you're doing on the ground, let us say, in a way that's meaningful for students, but still maintains the privacy and the anonymity of your of your patients. You know, there are there are specific details, I suppose, around a person's life that if you were to share, you know, let's say particular information, this person, let's say, you know, their children are in a particular school, that would be a violation of their privacy. But you can talk about human dilemmas, you know, in terms of very specific forms of suffering or struggles or people are having without having to reveal anything that would be in any way recognizing any particular person. Now, 
there is sometimes a challenge when pastor, let's say a person uh, sees their particular pastor and they know him or her in a, in a variety of roles. So they see him on Sunday mornings and then they're kind of wanting to come and see them on midweek in terms of in the office. That creates particular challenges for the pastor to really respect that. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of pastors will then refer clients. If, if the problems are more deep-seated, then it's really probably more effective for the pastor not to have to deal with the person both in their sort of psychological, emotional challenges and also deal with the other pastoral concerns in the, in the community. So it sounds like what you're teaching here at IPS, at the Institute for Pastoral Studies, is useful not only for direct contact with people who are in crisis, but also for pastors to be able to discern for themselves when to make those kinds of referrals and when when they've reached or they've exceeded their capacity to be a pastoral presence for that person. Yeah, exactly. Because when you when you engage a person in a suffering story, you have to have enough awareness or willingness or recognition of your own capacity to accompany them through the process. In other words, that would be really a pastoral violation if you had to abandon someone sort of midway through their healing journey just because it got a little too hot for you or you're out of your league or, you know, you're stumped. So that really wouldn't be pastorally appropriate. You have to sort of work within your capabilities. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor William Schmidt. We're discussing his work at the Institute for Pastoral Studies here in Chicago. He works at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Professor William Schmidt of the Institute for Pastoral Studies here in Chicago. We're discussing his work at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality. So a focal point for your research is pilgrimage. First of all, for my listeners, when we use this word pilgrimage, what are we discussing? Pilgrimage has a rich, uh, deep history, and so there are different ways of understanding it. There are styles of pilgrimage that would be, uh, let's say, exclusively devotional, where a person comes with a particular set of historical awarenesses, let's say a person... uh, is seeking to find, let's say, some healing for their lives. They're aware that there are physical destinations where people have found some meaningful healing in their life experiences, let's say at a shrine or a kind of a spiritually focused healing environment, and they will gravitate toward that environment and have a journey toward a particular destination. Other pilgrimage types are of of a kind of more broadly transformational, where a person uh, is living through some personal discontent, you know, their lives have sort of come to a screeching halt, they're not sure what's next. And pilgrimage can be embarked on as a, as a way of deep reflection, a kind of an intentional journey in which you seek to have a deeper, authentic relationship with yourself, kind of new life direction, but also stay or grow in your connection with God and your other life challenges kind of thing. And so when we're talking about a pilgrimage, I'm, what comes to my mind is 
people in the Middle Ages going to some holy site or holy shrine. Is that the right mental image or should I change my mental image about that somehow? In terms of the, the dynamics of pilgrimage, that's certainly one of the legitimate ones. There's about six or seven sort of pilgrimage types and going to a shrine it would be absolutely one of them. Uh, and so, and every one of these are, are really legitimate unto themselves because it, it has its own like inherent wisdom and its own meanings. And they've, they're sort of tried and true practices that they have worked over the ages. And so one of the things that I think I try and do with, with my sort of pilgrimage preparation for students and others is the internal preparation before we go on a pilgrimage is really, really important. So you have to really reflect on what is it that you're actually really needing to engage in your life? What is the intention that you're, what is this central core problem, dilemma, distress that you're living? And to really have a kind of a conscious owning of that. And once you have that in place, then you can create a more intentional ritual structure around your pilgrimage so that you go with intention, but also with the kind of the structure to hold you as you go through the whole experience. And so is a pilgrimage extra to liturgy? Is it outside of liturgy? Or, I mean, the way that you were just describing that, it almost sounds like a pilgrimage is a liturgical act. Yes. Or it's got a ritual act to yeah, it. Absolutely. It's supplementary, I would say, yes, to, to liturgy, very and, much. And so I, I imagine that there are some there are some religious traditions that are more what we might call free church traditions that might be very uncomfortable with that. Is, right. is that correct? Well, the Protestant tradition has had a very uh, for for many years had a very negative understanding of pilgrimage, and it really came out of some of the Protestant Reformation reaction around indulgences and so on. So Luther, for instance, had a very very strong negative reaction out of his own pilgrimage to Rome. So uh, that, those attitudes, I think, persisted for many uh, hundreds of years. But nowadays, I find across the you know, religious spectrum, people are really embarking on pilgrimages like never before. So it's really become a kind of a, a renewal of that as a, as a practice, as a, as a vital practice for spiritual growth. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that Protestants are sort of picking this up in an individual way, and they're finding pieces of the pilgrimage traditions that speak to them. Yes, absolutely. Is this similar to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation of, of helping each person sort of find and admit their own placedness and to begin to navigate in their own story? Yeah, and to ask themselves, what, what are the primary burning questions in my life? And where can I be more intentional about holding those questions for myself, but creating the practices that will support me in those, in those growth efforts? So then let me ask you, is, do you think of a pilgrimage act as more a fleeing from or a running to? I would not call it a, a fleeing from or fleeing away because it's one of the gifts of pilgrimage is it'll take you much more deeply and more authentically into the questions of your life. And so it's really, there's really no way to run away from yourself on a pilgrimage. I don't think, you know, I suppose if you get completely flooded and overwhelmed, you sort of give up or you say, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't deal with this anymore. But it's transformational possibility is really out there. So it really it depends on the person's willingness to sort of endure the <laughs> endure the rigors of the of the stuff that they're actually having to face anyway. So the the destination of a pilgrimage is really oneself. The place that you're journeying to is a better understanding of yourself. Am I hearing that correctly? Well, I would broaden in three ways. So when I when I uh, I actually construct a pilgrimage course for for my students at IPS, and so the the three way structure that we use is. And, and the student has to prepare before we actually embark on it, is three, three focus areas. Your relationship to yourself, 
your relationship to others, and your relationship to God. So any one of these three lenses can really deepen your life experience, but generally your entry point is one of the three, but you're going to be touching all those areas. So the relationship with God inevitably comes up. If, if you're dealing with something real in your life, your relationship with God is going to be touching it at some level. So I would affirm that God is invested in our the critical questions of our lives, God is deeply invested in meeting us at the heart of those questions. So a true pilgrimage will will always open up kind of the spirit question as well. How, do, how does God's spirit show up in this particular uh, concern of mine or this particular life theme I'm working with? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor William Schmidt of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We're discussing his work at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality. What are the physical requirements if someone wants to undertake a pilgrimage? Uh, well, let me take actually back up before I ask that question. You yourself went on at least one pilgrimage, and you wrote about it in your book, Walking with Stones, A Spiritual Odyssey on the Pilgrimage to Santiago. Could you take a moment and tell us about what that experience was like for you? Where where did you walk to, and, and why did you walk there? Yeah. Well, uh the pilgrimage to Santiago has a very, very deep ancient uh, history. It's it's been utilized for uh, hundreds of years, uh, and even predates Christian uh, Christian times. And it's found profound renewal because, in many ways, the whole route and there's there actually it's like the spokes of a wheel. So, for many hundreds of years, pilgrims from wherever they they came from, from all parts of Europe, uh, just sort of walked out their front doors and chose to walk to Santiago and. Santiago is known for the the grave of of Saint James, and so he uh, is sort of the focal point of that pilgrimage. And so, in the modern era, people walk it for all kinds of uh, reasons. So, generally, however, there is some life blockage that has impacted that person. So, there's something going on in your life, either some pain journey that you're on, some frustration, some life direction that's really not gelling for you, and so it. But often we don't really know what our ultimate outcome is going to be. So you're kind of embarking on faith that there is going to be a deepening happening. And so the rigors of it, and, and, and one of the positive or helpful parts of the Camino itself is because of its duration. In other words, most people start in either southern France or some other part of Spain or, or even for, further away. And through the many days and weeks of walking, it really surfaces whatever your own life dilemmas are. So your relationship to yourself, you're, also, you're absolutely then having to confront your own internal frustrations, your limitations, your own pattern, your own life patterns really show up for you. So it's like a laboratory of inviting you to face the parts of yourself that you had a tough time facing. But you do this in the context of journeying. And so there are many supportive practices that people uh, can utilize along the way. I, For myself, I constructed a variety of sort of uh, supportive practices, including singing. I, I uh, sing in a choir, and so I have a whole repertoire of songs that I use. So I, was, I did a lot of singing. I did a lot of meditative walking. And the title of the book references stones. So part of the process for me is I had this commitment of picking up a stone each day, and one would be my sorrow stone or my, my pain stone, and I also had a joy stone. So I had these two uh, coins in my pocket, 
And about a few weeks into it, I realized, you know, I, I don't just live pain and sorrow, those two things. I also bring these things together in my life. So I actually then found always a third stone, a unifying stone. So these stones I had in my pocket as kind of reminders, invitations to prayer and to reflect on these parts of my life. So there are little cues you can give yourself when you're on a pilgrimage to really be in a very intentional journey around these life transformative elements that normal life doesn't necessarily create enough space or enough of a focus and sort of being out of the normal setting of your life being in a different environment where you're then encountering fellow pilgrims who they're who are they're on on their own journeys and so there's a there's a deep camaraderie and, and a kind of a spiritual synergy that you, you i might say there so there is a kind of a holding environment that's provided for you even when you go in a group or if you go individually there's a lot of camaraderie every day you're with fellow pilgrims even though you may be walking alone for most of the day during meal times and so on you're interfacing with other people and then you may end up in a particular place where there's some some worship liturgical elements offered there you might be staying overnight in a monastery so there's a there's a kind of a, every day you go through this kind of rigorous deepening and opening up the questions of your own life and you mentioned meeting people along the way. Did you make some relationships there that you've maintained, or, or were they just ephemeral? No, I still have connections with uh, people. I communicate regularly with some of my fellow pilgrims from that time. And this is now 10 years ago, by the way. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor William Schmidt of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We're discussing his work at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality, as well as his love of pilgrimage. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor William Schmidt. We're discussing his work at the interface of psychology, theology, and spirituality, as well as his work teaching at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. So we had begun to talk about this, but if someone who is listening to this decides now that they want themselves to go on a pilgrimage, what do they need to do to begin to prepare for that? What are the first steps to take those steps? Well, they probably should uh, do some reading and research in terms of what pilgrimage options are out there. There's a whole host of them in the United States of places one could go, either as a as a personal, private pilgrimage in a sense, but also in a, as a community. So faith communities often are thinking about offering pilgrimage 
events for their for their parishioners. So you'd have to have a destination in mind. And there's just some great literature out there in terms of giving you some some, some cues, some supportive uh, parameters in terms of how to prepare. So I think the preparation is is really key. And then there is a whatever whatever one on undergoes while on the pilgrimage there are there's there's a, a very important practice of journaling that I think is really central so one of the things I and most you you, you when you at the end of the day you'll notice people sitting around on the pilgrimage journaling actively and so this daily reflection on your own experience and you pull it together in a kind of a, a personal narrative really ties the threads of your life together that many many times in our as as moderns here we don't really linger enough in terms of these deeper life themes. And so when someone has done this, when they've done the research and they've done it, it sounds, how do we differentiate a pilgrimage from just kind of boutique travel? I mean, I think that there's a danger there that we could make this into yet another thing to tick off of our gotta-do list or our bucket list. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think intention is, is really critical. So this tension of travel you know, being a tourist is not the same thing as being a pilgrim. Being a pilgrim means you have an intentionality around your own transformational needs in your life. So you're embarking on it to engage change in your life. As a tourist, you're not really looking for that. You're just looking for a good time or, you know, you have particular experiences you might want to have, but you're not entering into it with a particular transformational intent. And so that's one of the main distinctions, I would say. And when you go into a pilgrimage with that intention, it's going to impact you probably in some unexpected ways, but uh, I'm going to be taking a group of students to Rome this summer. And so, which is a kind of a different, normally I do my pilgrimage treks with students in more uh, remote environments where nature is, is a kind of a focal point. But when you're in Rome, you're going to be bombarded with all the stimulation to the city and the architecture and even the churches. And so you're just sort of immersed in the kind of the exterior environment. And so there are going to be particular preparations that I'm going to invite the students to enter into in terms of how reflection happens in those environments. So uh, having the tools of personal reflection on, let's say, faith journey, how your faith journey is sort of meeting up or matching what you're seeing outside of yourself. So there is a way in which you can use travel as a lens for your own growth, but you have to do it with some discipline. In other words, that you're not just sort of meandering around and not really gaining the rigor, undergoing the rigor of self-reflection. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that there's an importance of preparation and also an importance to almost to have a guide or someone who can help you to figure out how not to meander. Yes. So here at the, as we're beginning to close our conversation, I'm hearing great parallels between a journey of pilgrimage and what one does in a good spiritual counseling experience. Am I imagining those or do you see those parallels as well? There are deep parallels and, and it's really a kind of a simulation of a kind of a concentrates the, the life themes that you can't necessarily get at in the sort of everydayness of your own life. So... For instance, I have actually had students, or sorry, uh, clients that have gone through some deep suffering, let's say loss of a young loss of young children through tragic circumstances, in which we constructed a a pilgrimage narrative to help them hold that deep pain, and uh, and so with a very safe structure in place, they have experienced some real profound renewal for their lives. So I really believe in this as a as a deeply healing journey as well for people, and it's it's an ancient tool 
isn't it? When we look at this ancient tool that we can use even in the modern day, do we face the same the same difficulties or the same obstacles spiritually that those who first embarked on these pilgrimages did, or have our problems changed? I don't think our problems are any different. I think we, we can avoid our, our truth in the same way we always have. So I don't think human nature hasn't changed, but it's, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the stimulations of our modern world create ever more, uh, let's say, distractions or potential avoidances. So sometimes when you run out of the, uh, the, vo- the avoidances that you, that, that you think have worked for you, once you run out of those, pilgrimage is the next best option, <laughs> I would say. So if, if you've been running from a truth, yes. maybe the best way to begin to actually get honest about that truth is to stop running and start walking? Exactly. You got it. <laughs> well, so you work with your students, you work with your clients, and I imagine you work with yourself as well at getting honest about obstacles and getting honest about frustrations and helping people to, to get past those frustrations. Given that that's your job, is there anything that still frustrates you on a regular basis, either about your life or about the world? Well, life hasn't stopped for me either. So I, I have my own personal challenges, uh, you know, in terms of my own place in life. You know, I'm uh, a person in his uh, late 60s, so I have I have life themes that I have to deal with. Uh, I have issues in my, let's say, with one of my children. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, life circumstances. My mother died this last, last year, so, so life sorry. does not stop uh, for any of us. So these commitments of deepening can pop up in some unexpected times and places, but we're always on a journey. And so I think the the structure of journeying, I think, is a kind of a lifelong theme. And so journeying is one other way to kind of think about pilgrimage as a, you know, we're all on a journey nonstop, but sometimes we need to intensify our journeying to have an intentionality around it. So whatever life themes are going on that have a kind of a particular, like, dicey, naughty uh, tension within them, that might be a a good time to think about what else might I need to do to kind of really deepen this particular phase of my life. So given that that you experience frustrations just like everyone experiences frustrations, what do you do then to stay hopeful? Well, I think pilgrimage has, as any faith, faith discipline does, it deepens you and it gives you staying power. And so staying power lets you sort of stay in the question a little longer. And so as we deepen our journeys of faith, we gain endurance and we gain renewal and we we gain hope. Well, Professor William Schmidt, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to speak to me today. I know that my listeners will benefit from your experience and your wisdom both in the classroom and outside the classroom and especially your time on the Pilgrim Way. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Dr. William Schmidt. He's professor in the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. His research addresses the theme of contemporary pilgrimage as a resource for personal growth, transformation, and healing. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. 
Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.